Hi entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, welcome back to the Long Game Podcast. In today's episode, we have a very special guest joining us, Tan Sri Andrew Sheng, a renowned former central banker and financial regulator in Asia. He will be sharing his insights on the sustainability of venture capital. As the economy continues to experience a high-yield environment, many are wondering if VC is a bubble waiting to burst. In this episode, we will explore the role that venture capital can play in creating long-term sustainable economic growth and how we can navigate the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. But before we dive into our discussion with Tan Sri Andrew Sheng, let's take a look at some of the highlights from Q1 2023 with our colleague Iman. So sit back, relax and let's get started. Hi, I'm Iman. I'm an analyst of Panjana Capital. Today, we will be looking back on what has happened in the first quarter around the globe and in Malaysia. At the start of the year, investors have hoped there would be a quick recovery to support economic conditions and avert a deep recession, especially when the US, UK and Europe's Consumer Price Index, CPI, has indicated the beginning of this inflation trend which started in December 2022. When February 2023 came, there were a divergence in inflation between these blocks where we have seen a mixed trend in inflation. With the backdrop of rising interest rates, we have seen several bank failures recorded in March. Notably, three banks, Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate and Signature Bank had collapsed in a span of a week in the U.S., over in Europe, the world saw the first rescue of a global bank since 2008 in UBS taking over Credit Suisse, merging the two Swiss banks into one big group. With banking catastrophes surfacing, it is interesting to note on how central banks would react to this situation in the next few months and how it would affect the private markets. The collapse of banks has also brought more attention to corporate governance and risk management in big corporates. This seems to be a trend that is similar to the startup world where we have seen the collapse of several startups who failed to raise new funds due to internal governance issues such as FTX, Genesis, and Zilingo. In Malaysia, Bank Negara Malaysia, BNM, has decided to maintain the overnight policy rate, OPR, at 2.75% for quarter one of this year. At the current OPR level, the stance of monetary policy remains accommodative and supportive of economic growth as the headline and core inflation are expected to moderate over the course of 2023 but will continue to be elevated amid lingering demand and cost factors. In the recent revised budget 2023 announcement, the government has expressed its commitment to support high-value-add local startups from early stage right up to listing on to Bursa Malaysia. Towards this, the government-linked investment companies, also known as GLICs, will set aside 1.5 billion ringgit in 2023 to invest in homegrown startups. In fact, 
Kazanah National Berhad, Malaysia's Sovereign Wealth Fund had announced its future Malaysia program under its 6 billion dana impact recently. We expect this to positively impact the development of the local startup ecosystem. That's all from me and I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Up next, it will be the interview with Tan Sri Andrew Sheng. Before we jump right into the interview with Tan Sri Andrew Sheng, on behalf of Penjana Capital, we would like to wish all women happy International Women's Day. In celebration of International Women's Day this month, here's a fun fact highlighting the contribution of women in venture capital industry. Did you know that as of 2022, women still remain underrepresented in the venture capital industry? In 2020 alone, only 12.4% of decision makers in US venture capital firms were women. Fast forward to 2022 and the number has seen a slight increase. With women now comprising only 14.5% of decision makers in the industry, Despite this progress, there's still a long way to go to achieve gender parity. Interestingly, research has constantly shown that companies with female founder or co-founder outperform all male founding team. A study conducted by Boston Consulting Group and Mass Challenge revealed that for every dollar of investment raised, female founder startup generated 78 cents in revenue, while all male founding team generated only 31 cents. This data emphasized the untapped potential of investing in women-led businesses. Another study by First Round Capital, which analyzed over 300 companies in a portfolio, found that startups with at least one female founder perform 63% better than those with all male founding team. This further highlights the importance of increasing diversity in venture capital industry as it leads to better financial return and drive innovation. Efforts has been made in recent years to close the gender gap in venture capital. With initiatives such as Allrise, a non-profit organization dedicated to accelerating the success of female founders and funders by providing resources, mentorship, and networking opportunities, this program aims to empower women and pave the way for a more inclusive and diverse industry. In conclusion, while there has been some progress in increasing the representation of women in venture capital, this industry still has a long way to go to achieve gender parity. Investing in women-led businesses not only promote diversity. And innovation, but also yield better financial return. As more attention is brought to this issue, and initiatives like Allrise continue to gain momentum, we can hope to see even more significant strides in the years to come. Hello and welcome to the long game. I am Taufik Iskandar from Punjana Capital, along with my colleagues, bringing you a variety of perspectives. I'll be talking about the intersections of financial markets and entrepreneurship. We bring the leading voices, shaping the conversations around issues affecting business and capital. Joining us today uh, is our distinguished guest, uh, Professor Tanshri Andrew Shang. He was born and raised in Sabah and Kota Kinabalu. He went to uh, England to study. He had extensive experience in central banking and capital market, public policies, economics, and even regulator. Um, thank you, Tanshri, for your time today. Oh, great pleasure to be here. 
Right. Uh, Tanshree, uh, there will be two parts of today's conversation. Part one, we want to ascertain and descend your specific views on capital market, in particular venture capital. And the second part, we would like to hear your general thoughts on current issues dominating our headlines. If I may, uh, let me start with uh, part one of the conversations. Uh, before I jump on to my first questions, uh, let me share with you some of the key facts from our observations. From 1998 to 2021, we have seen a divergence between Malaysia's banking sector and equity market. Our banking sector grew from 498 billion to 3.12 trillion, representing 528% growth over that time period, or 8.3% on 23-year compounded annual growth rate. Our equity market, on the other hand, grew from 375 billion to 1.8 trillion, or 381% growth over the time period, or 7.1% on the 23-year compounded annual growth rate. Even in our public markets, typically about 80% of the capital raised every year is in the form of debt instruments. So this shows a form of risk aversion among the capital market players or a lack of risk sharing uh, um, via equity, which is what, again, venture capital and private equity promotes. So my question to you, Tanshri, is why is our capital market leaned more towards debt as opposed to risk-sharing via equity? And how can we encourage more risk-taking activities and risk-sharing? Well, there are two fundamental reasons, maybe three, but I'll, let me go to the first two first. The first thing is that there is a tax bias uh, between debt and equity. The, if, if you uh, banks lend and they lose money on the principal, it's tax-deductible. But if I invest in equity and I lose money on my share price, that's not tax deductible. So that's the first, you know, that's immediately. Incentive, uh, investors are not incentive. A tax incentive to borrow, right, to borrow uh, and to lend. So this is point number one. You know, the second one, of course, is the leverage effect. Now, if I'm the owner of the company um, uh, uh, and I uh, increase my debt, relative to my equity, my ROE, the return on equity, increases. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, it's very simple. You know, so if I were to uh, make a profit of one uh, and I borrow uh, uh, money, okay, and uh, the, the, at a fixed interest rate, and if you know, I'm, I'm earning the same rate as before, my equity is smaller, my return is bigger, so my return on equity looks good. Mm -hmm. The downside of this is, fr is fragility. Mm -hmm. Because if I borrow everything uh, and I can't repay for, for whatever reason, I lose everything. Mm -hmm. right? So to some extent, the debt is a risk transfer from the bank to the owner of capital. Mm -hmm. And the equity financing mm -hmm. is risk sharing. Because whoever holds the risk I win, everybody wins, or every shareholder wins. I lose, every shareholder lose. So we're committed together. Now, this, uh, uh, you know, two elements is very critical. There's a third element to this, which is that, which I, which I said is what has uh, happened, is that if I am the owner of equity, I don't want to lose control. So 
if I raise equity, I share profits, and of course I share losses, but the creates uh, uh, the incentive is that I borrow, all the risks goes into the company, the ROE increases, but if anything happens, um, I may lose not that much. Okay, so what has what this three combination has created a very unhealthy uh, global financial system in which equity keeps on growing faster than, uh, sorry, debt markets, that means bank loans and uh, bonds, increase far faster than equity. So we now have a very unhealthy situation, except in the case of America, and America is very, very special, uh, uh, superficially uh, at least. So the, the, the result is uh, we have excess debt in uh, emerging markets, excess debt in advanced markets, but in the United States, because the stock market is so big relative to the banking system, they don't appear to be that leveraged. Uh, and so that's what Alan Greenspan said, we have a spare tire, you don't. So if your banking system is very big, and you have a bank run, like what's happening with SVB, then the system needs a central bank to lend hugely, you know, incurring fiscal deficits to rescue the banking system. Whereas the American system, if the, um, if the banking system has a shock, the, the American stock market is deep enough to absorb that shock. And that's where we are at this stage. Right. Uh, Tanshi, perhaps I would like to dissect more uh, from the points you've raised. Uh, I'm very much interested in how we can change the balance, the dynamics uh, of our capital market that is driven by so-called passive capital holders uh, or, or non-risk or less risk capital, uh, i.e. in the form of debt. Uh, if I could recall, I'm, I was still young then, uh, before the 1998 financial crisis, I noticed entrepreneurship was uh, common. Entrepreneurs were celebrated. Our stock market was uh, um, buoyant. Um, on the other hand, the banking sector was still at nascent. Uh, um, you know, equity market grew much faster than, uh, than uh, the banking sector. Do you see a correlation between entrepreneurship and risk sharing or promotions of equity as an instrument? That's number one. Number two, why suddenly the balance changed? And now we have more of a bigger banking sector, less of the equity market, um, and people just do not want to pursue entrepreneurship anymore. Well, um, the first thing is that I think um, our f uh, economics and finance strategies basically learn from the West. And the, um, the idea was in the equity markets, if we become like NASDAQ and and you know, New York Stock Exchange, we've reached Nirvana, right? And the, 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 the thinking is that we're like a small aircraft and it's, it's very slow beginning, but we'll take off. Once we take off, you know, we're, we're Nirvana. They tend to forget that uh, planes crash <laughs> or they go through huge turbulence. The banking system, again, we follow the West and we say, okay, you know, uh, if Western banks are done like this, we should go the same direction. And that's how our laws, our uh, tax incentives follow the West. I mean, you know that. And then, of course, the Asian financial crisis happened. Now, uh, I think you are very sharp. You brought in the key points, which is very deep. 
pre-1998, we were the darlings of the global financial system. Right, we were thirty percent of the MSCI, you know, the Morgan Stanley, you know, capital index, right? And everybody loved us because we were the Wild West. And at that point of time, pre ninety eight, if you look at the statistics, the market cap of Burs KLSE, you know, Kuala Lumpur Stock Exchange, was larger than the banking system. Now, what the, what does that mean on a risk sharing basis? This means now, of course, it was Wild West. There's no doubt about it, right? And you know, people went in and made huge fortunes. Uh, um, you know, uh, some of it was due to very shoddy uh, cap market manipulation activities. You know, excess leverage, etc. But markets went up, markets went down, and they had very deep cushion. Come '98, the mentality was: we need to repair the banking system. The banking system uh, got over-leveraged itself. The corporate market got over-leveraged itself. Therefore, we should strengthen and reform the banking system with Basel II, right? And then, you know, today with Basel III and increasingly Basel IV. So we tightly regulated the banking system to protect the, the depositor. So we became risk-adverse. On the, uh, um, uh, um, so the focus of government was protecting the uh, depositors, but tended to neglect the factor that income and wealth comes from entrepreneurship. Now, how did I get that insight? Because I was invited to go to uh, Dunhuang, which is on the edge of the desert between China and the Middle East. And of course, as you know, between the, you know, China and the Middle East is massive desert. And it was due to the caravans. So I looked at the caravans and I said, well, could conventional banking finance these caravans? And it suddenly struck me, it's impossible, right? There is no amount of collateral, no amount of interest rate return uh, uh, that can finance these caravans, okay? The reason is the risks are huge. You know, if you're driving a caravan through thousand miles of desert, uh, you get lost, you get blown away, <laughs> you get robbed in between. When you get to the oasis, you, the, your, your goods could be confiscated, you could get cheated, your own people could be cheating you, right? So it was all about risk-taking. But as we all know, the one caravan that comes back, you know, is a unicorn. It makes fantastic profits that pays for all the losses of all the other caravans that get robbed or cheated or whatever. What we call in, uh, in, in this uh, uh, industry the power law distribution. That's right. But what the, 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 then you realize why in Dunhuang you had all these uh, caves dedicated to Buddha, and, but the caravans were Arab and that gave me an understanding that's Islamic finance. Because, you see, when you go through uncertainty, you must have faith. You must have trust. And Islamic finance is actually all about risk-sharing, risk-taking, and all the prophets, a lot of them, came from a trader background. So that is the fundamental difference between the Islamic finance, it's about risk equity sharing with ethics yes. and values, mm -hmm. right?
Whereas the Western one uh, is, well, you know, we, once we get rid of usury, you can be predatory, <laughs> okay? Um, you know, when, when a bank lends to a customer, it's risk transfer. I'm transferring all my risk to the customer because I'm taking collateral, okay? So the whole system's getting distorted. Now, that means that we need to go back to basics. And we've now seen the basics post-1998 in the form of Silicon Valley. What is Silicon Valley financing? Now, let's not talk about Silicon Valley Bank, but the Silicon Valley financing is basically knowledge-based entrepreneurship entering into high-risk areas, but with investors who understand that risk, but with high gain. So if I invest in one unicorn, which has a, a, a return of one billion, I don't care about the 99, 99, 99 or 990 other uh, uh, not startups that I invested in that either don't make money or whatever. And so as long as people are not cheating in the game, you back these young ones and they make that breakthrough, you're a big winner, yeah. right? And of course, you know, what the ecosystem in Silicon Valley is, is as follows. And this is very important for us to understand. Silicon Valley is an ecosystem. It's five universities, you know, Caltech, Stanford, UC Berkeley, you know, uh, UC uh, San Francisco, you know, and, uh, and, and maybe even UCLA. Their top technology professors were the ones who said, I am now moving out into the private sector to start up. Now, of course, they borrowed a lot of technology from the defense department, you know, uh, things like mouse and, you know, uh, so the Fairchilds of this world, the, the apples of this world, the, you know, the intels of this world were these professors. When they went out to the private sector, their fellow professors and students in the universities became their R&D. Not just their R&D, they not only subcontracted that R&D to these universities, the students became their staff. So, you know, and that's why today, you know, the 40% the of the people hires in, in, in Silicon Valley don't finish their degrees because, you know, if I've done an app or I've done a software or I've invented particularly circuit, that that company can use, why do I need to, re, to, to finish my degree? I just go there and work and I've become a, you know, I might become a billionaire. I've certainly, I've definitely become a millionaire. So the ecosystem is now uh, successful, okay? So when you go to Silicon Valley, you suddenly, they don't seem to have that much hardware. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all software. Yeah. Now, what does that tell you? Why can't we replicate this in Malaysia, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, small countries, um, Taiwan is an example, South Korea is an example, um, you know, Finland is another example, with very good, and Holland is, in fact, is a very good example, with very good universities, they come up with products mm -hmm. that become world-breaking, mm -hmm. and they make a fortune. And then they bring up the rest of the country, right? So it doesn't really matter. It's not about the average. We have to bring up everybody in the country. We bring up a few people in the country who brings that wealth up. And as long as these reinvest back in the country, then the whole country will do well. Right. Uh, Tan Sri, 
very interesting observation uh, about uh, how it started as Islamic finance. You raised that Islamic finance really, truly represents that finance is a service and it's based on trust and confidence. And um, in recent years, and you think Silicon Valley actually encapsulate that essence of um, Islamic finance, uh, financial services based on trust. I would like to share a couple of trivia with our listeners. And this is where it gets even more interesting. Um, the idea of VC funding or venture capital here is relatively a new concept of finance. Um, started in 1940s uh, when, you know, after the World War II, soldiers came back from war uh, with the dream of starting new ventures and pursue entrepreneurship. Before that, getting risk capital uh, was difficult as most of the capital then were trapped uh, with family officers, uh, Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, uh, Vanderbilt, and banks were like you mentioned, um, risk averse. In the 1940s, we had ARDC and J.H. Whitney, um, which then uh, were truly represented the VCs in the U.S. And ARDC went on to, you know, to generate one of the best venture returns in history. I think it's uh, investment in digital equipment corporation uh, alone, DEC, generated more than 1,000 uh, MOIC or multiple on invested capital, and that was in 1957. Uh, then in 1970s and 1980s, we saw the birth of Sequoia Capital, Kleiner Perkins, and um, they created some of today's biggest companies, Apple, Genentech, FedEx, Microsoft, and Electronic Arts. And in the period of 1990s to dot-com bubble, we saw a lot of VC-backed deals, uh, although at that point turned out to be extremely overvalued, but yet some of them turned out to be successful ventures. And they are Yahoo, Amazon, eBay, and even Alibaba in China. This batch of companies created a whole new uh, wave of innovation and digitalization. However, Malaysia uh, VC started relatively late in 1984 with the establishment of Malaysian Ventures in Amrahat. But fast forward almost four decades, um, the local VC scene is still underdeveloped. Um, and you mentioned uh, venture capital, finance is all about the ecosystem. Uh, to us, ecosystem is built on at least four capital. One is, of course, financial capital. Second is built on uh, talent capital, human capital. Third is, is built on network capital. And lastly is regulatory capital. Why we didn't actually generate our own ecosystem? Which part of these equations that we failed to nurture and support? I think, uh, again, I would like to say we got all these ideas from the West. But there was one thing that the West didn't understand is that when you become more and more specialized you become more and more siloed that means if i am a carpenter i see every problem as a nail if i am a banker my my mission is to be risk averse but if 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 i look at everything as a banker and i ignore risk i ignore opportunity I can't take risks and therefore I become more and more conservative and risk takers will overtake me. So we, you know, we, we really need to go back to ecosystem is about holistic thinking. And that's why when I quoted the example of Silicon Valley, it struck me. Silicon Valley is ABC, academia, business and civil service. 
The civil servants understood, and in fact, even the defense department said, well, we need you to uh, develop this technology for me. And by the way, I don't mind if you actually use this technology to make some money. And that's how the, 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 the silicon chip uh, happened, right? The, you know, transistor happened. Because, you know, the U.S. Defense Department wanted transistors to do some more computing. And suddenly, some, you know, somebody said, wow, we can make this, uh, Hewlett Packard said, I can make a, a calculator for this. And as a huge market for calculators, you know, my first calculator, I paid 1,000 US dollars for a Hewlett Packard, you know, a complex calculator. And it was amazing. It was mind blowing. So the academia, you know, needs to generate that talent for the business. The business is the entrepreneur taking and making the money and the civil service needs to work with them to have the knowledge. So actually, the future of the world is about knowledge-based economy. It's those who are smarter, who think strategically and act strategically, that grasp the opportunities. Okay. Now, if you are pure academic and you only talk but do not walk, who is doing the walking in this taking the risk? It's the business sector. right? And who has to foster that? Ultimately, it's the civil service. You know, it's the it's the government. So, so really, we really need to have a you know we un need to understand this ecosystem in which we are in this all together. Now, if we can't get our act together, it's the social capital, but it's also the business model. So, you know, Eric Beinhocker, who wrote this brilliant book, I think, in my view. Uh, about the origin of wealth. The origin of wealth is three things. Physical capital, which is what we inherit, okay, or we invest in hardware, that's physical capital, things we can touch. Then there's social capital. Social capital would include human capital, right? But, you know, now, so that the third one is the business model. Now, this is where, you know, the difference between a private enterprise, which is profit-making, and a social enterprise. A social enterprise doesn't, uh, make money. It's not supposed to be make money. But if a social enterprise depends upon charity, it's not sustainable. So actually, if you really think about the mom and pop shops, the, 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 the people who make nasi lemak or, you know, you know the chakwete or whatever, or the even vegetable seller, you know, they are, you say that they are private enterprise. Yes, they are private enterprise, but actually social enterprise because they don't make profit. They just keep mom and dad enough money to pay for their pensions and bring their children up and, you know, uh, uh, you know keep themselves, you know, pay for their medical bills, etc. So actually, the line between private enterprise, small and medium enterprise is, and social enterprise is actually very small. But you think about it. All our tax benefits, all our regulation is to support the big companies. But the small and medium enterprises, they account for 80% of the employment. They account for only 40% of GDP. But, you know, that GDP is not calculated, is wrongly calculated because, as you know, GDP does not include family activity. So, if, you know, if I marry my, my housekeeper... GDP goes uh, goes down 
because the services that my housekeeper provides that is paid for is included in GDP. But the minute we're married, you know, it's, it's not included. I'm sorry, this is very uh, uh, not politically correct or not gender correct, but the, the, it's, it's, it can be either way, right? So the, 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 the thinking is wrong now. We really need to work together, you know, academia, business, and civil service in one seamless partnership to grow our ecosystem. And risk capital is the business model of this is right at the heart of it. Let me put this into um, smaller pieces so that our listeners would understand. So coming back to how ecosystem is created, four types of capital. First, um, financial capitals. And we've discussed this. We have a lot of capital liquidity in Malaysia, in the system, but they are not risk capital. We are short of risk capital. Um, that's one. That's a problem we have. Another one, we talk about network capital. Um, your point, Tanshree, is that um, our approach is wrong. It's supposed to be holistic. And network is not built like a plantation. It's not linear. It's a complex web. Everyone has a part to play. And we fail to nurture that. Um, so that is our failure. And the third part is regulatory capital. And I think I can sense what you try to bring up, that the government is supposed to be uh, a facilitator. Uh, we should not crowd out private enterprises. Uh, and trying to get a sustainable business model is very important here, and how government can actually facilitate that. And government has not done that enough in that regard. Now, another part is talent, human capital. What actually went wrong, Tanshri? I mean, uh, where do you think we are lacking compared to our regional peers? Let me give you an anecdote, uh, uh, some pointers, uh, Tanshri. There were 52 new unicorns created in Southeast Asia between 2014 and 2021. 28 were based in Singapore, 13 were Indonesian, 5 from Vietnam and 4 from Thailand. And there's only one from Malaysia. What went wrong? Why did we? Why couldn't we generate enough entrepreneurs and fast-growing companies? What's lacking in terms of human capital development in this country? Well, you know, people. Tend, you see, this is again. Uh, I blame the West, right? The 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 West has talked freedom, talked democracy, you know, but actually delivered inequality. Uh, and they forgot that politics and economics and everything is really about people. Um, the the issue is that you know in the post nineteen sixty nine social consensus, when was the last time we sat down together in the middle of a crisis? Where do we go from here? And I think that the the new economic policy was absolutely correct. We were the first government post colonialism to deliver affirmative action and we said we need to bring the majority of the people up in terms of knowledge base and I think the NEP if I may say so was spectacularly successful in raising the majority into professional class whereas previously uh, it was only the urban people who were professionals and the rural people did not have a chance to move to become professionals but having moved to the professional class, the country cannot come together unless we generate the Bhumiputra entrepreneurial class. Because let's face it, 
I will never become rich. I will become moderately uh, uh, prosperous by being a professional. Now, as you know, if I am a, a, a CEO of a GLC, I will be paid in the millions. Okay, that's fine. But I will never be make it to the billions. Okay? And how do we get into the billions? Uh, um, let's be blunt about it, not through crony capitalism, but through genuine creation of risk capital in the unicorns that you talk about. So why is it that we haven't done this? And the, the part of the answer is our um, human capital strategy. Uh, what we've done, you know, particularly post-1998, was that, as I said, we became risk adverse, uh, and then we said, okay, uh, uh, we will keep on importing cheap labor. And by the way, we don't mind exporting our, our top labor. What kind of strategy is that? That strategy is I'm throwing out, I'm sorry to use a, a, a card game, all my trump cards and pulling, bringing in the cheap cards. Now, you know, the cheap labor is brought in has a very bad side effect. The side effect is that we're keeping wages of our young down. When I joined Bank Nagara, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, fifty, nearly fifty years ago now, you know, right, forty, uh, you know, forty, forty plus years ago now, you know, my salary is still bigger, higher than the the present graduate that's coming out. My 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 uh, uh, the daughter of a friend of mine in Kodikinabalu, you know, fresh graduate, one thousand five hundred ringgit per month. That's minimum wage. <clears throat> it doesn't make sense. We are supposed to become more prosperous. We've ended up our young people being paid less because as long as we pay cheap labor, import cheap labor, the worst part of that importing that cheap labor is now we are training Indonesian uh, laborers in our construction industry and our plantation industry to, to regenerate the construction industry in Indonesia and, and the plantation Indonesia in Indonesia. You know, well, you know, let's be blunt about it. Sooner or later, we're going to compete in the same area, right? So, you know, our strategy needs to be rethought. Yeah, you're right. Um, in fact, uh, interesting observation about the salary and seemingly as, you know, um, a simple problem, but it creates other bigger problems, problems of cost of living, problems of a highly leveraged household, a problem of underfunded pension. It's all stemmed from the fact that we suppress wages in the country. But I would like to bring your uh, point just now um, about new economic policy. And because this platform is supposed to be thought-provoking, uh, I would love to dissect your views on this. Um, I've listened to your talks before, and you obviously um, a supporter of new economic policies. You mentioned how we did well with financial literacy, setting up Tabung Haji, uh, pilgrimage fund to um, incentivize uh, Muslim depositors to invest. We set up Pramodalan National Brahat. It's part of promoting financial inclusion and equity. But there's only a portion of financial literacy. Another portion is entrepreneurship. And this is where we fail to nurture many more Bumiputra entrepreneurs in particular and promote social equity in the country. But uh, Tansri, um, talking about this entrepreneurship and talking about the so-called social and wealth redistribution, 
we need government. Government is the agent of redistributive, uh, uh, redistributive agent. I mean, to borrow Paul Samuelson, that's the role of government. I mean, through taxes and subsidies, right? Um, how can actually government be more effective in promoting social equity, financial inclusion, bringing up so-called the wealth of the largest community when trust is very low? when people actually has huge trust deficit when it comes to government? How can the government, who's supposed to be a redistributive agent, be effective in this regard? What do you think? Trust is two things. Trust is you can talk, but you must walk. Its actions speak louder than words, right? So the, the, the walking is very, very critical. What you do is very important. Look, what, not what I say, but what I do. Point number one. Point number two, for us to work together requires a conversation. You know, um, husband and wives always quarrel. But hopefully that's not end up in a divorce. The conversation is the one that keeps us together. And we've, you know, uh, this country has not had a serious conversation between the communities, between the urban and the rural between, you know, uh, different uh, uh, races, okay, or religion, right? We have begun to move into each other's, sorry to use the word, gated communities. And as long as we don't have this proper conversation, we can't forge a new way forward, right? Okay, and that, you know, that conversation is now necessary for us, however difficult it is. And we are always worried about being too sensitive. And that's why, you know, uh, two days ago, I mean, I, I gave a lecture uh, to the Malaysian Chinese community. Um, and, and I said, look, if the Chinese community does not help the majority to, in entrepreneurship, this country cannot go forward. So it's, it's not just, oh, the government must do something. It's not. The government cannot do everything. Right? The government cannot do everything. And, you know, you said, oh, well, business must do something. Well, the, if the purpose of business is to make money, uh, you know, why should they, you know, as, as we all say, even in, in, uh, uh, in, the, is, in the Islamic community, you know, uh, do all the rich give uh, zakat? I mean, some, but not, maybe they should, some of them should give more. The same, you know, uh, with the other communities, right? So the key issue here is that it's not the C stands not just for civil servants, but civil society. And so civil society, you know, uh, need to build, uh, to provide the health care. You know, when we, uh, when our parents grow old, you know, it's, we either move them into a, a profit-making care home, or we take care of them. Or a, uh, a, a social enterprise takes care of them. If we rely only upon the government to take care of them, it doesn't always work because you know if if you know it's very difficult for a civil servant to provide that emotional love uh, that the community can give for themselves, right? And as Malaysia also begins to age, you know it's you know it's like what President Kennedy said: Don't ask what your country can do for you; ask what you can do for your country. And, and, it's, and I'm not using the word country. I am saying do what we can for our community. Right? And until we have that mindset, rather than the mindset is 
me, 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 you know, rather than we, we, you see. The Western failure is too much me and not enough we, right? And some of the socialist countries is too much we and not enough me, okay? So what we really need is to get the right balance. Now, every society will get its own balance. So take, for example, Scandinavia, right? The, the Northern European countries, you know, are now today most, most successful. And yet, they have the highest tax in the world. And why is it that the rich Scandinavians are willing to pay that tax? And the answer is, I want a safe community. And there's trust in the system. And there's trust in the system. Right? So, to that extent, now, I'm, what, I'm, what my deep message is really this. There is no one-size-fit-all strategy like the Washington consensus that can fit us. We, all of us, need to find our own future forward. Either together as a family, community, or a country, or we go our separate ways. Right Now, the challenge today actually is not about internal. Of course it is internal. But the real challenge is that Malaysia within the larger community is that other countries, which we used to say, well, you know, they were far behind us, are now already in the rear mirror getting closer and closer. And some of them will disappear from the rear mirror because they are going to be ahead of us. So our real issue now is how do we in Malaysia work together to take us to the next level? Tantri, uh, another one questioned um, on this capital market. Uh, you mentioned we imported cheap labor, we export the brightest mind. Um, but one thing we also export is a financial capital. Um, the figure shows that we are exporter, net exporter of financial capital. I would like to ask for your thoughts here. What is your view on Malaysia's regulatory uh, landscape, in particular capital control? How do we balance the need to have a more supportive environment to support cross-border investment? And you know for venture capital, the default currency is still US dollar. And the opportunity is not just limited to Malaysia, it's becoming a regional opportunity. Um, Malaysia is a gateway to ASEAN. That is a story that we've been told several times. So how do we balance the need for minimal frictions on capital flows and the fears of currency devaluations, fear of capital outflows? How do we, what is your view on this? Well, the capital outflow numbers are very clear, right? Malaysia makes 3% of GDP every year in current account surplus. That's phenomenal. That's very good by any standards. And yet for the last 30 years, our foreign exchange reserve has been flat at around $100 billion. What does that tell you? Capital is flowing out. And capital will continue to flow out if the risk return on capital is higher abroad than risk return capital internally. And if your growth rate is only 4%, and let's say in Indonesia or the rest of ASEAN will be somewhere between 6 to 8%, of course the risk capital will go out. We don't have the scale, right? That means, you know, Malaysia is only 35 million population, 30, 30, 30, 30, somewhere between 33 to 35 million population. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Vietnam and Philippines is 100 million, and Indonesia is 288 million. So we don't have that scale. Okay, this is point number one. 
Secondly, because we're a small country, we don't necessarily have that speed. If our regulation are such is that we're imposing Western standard without the Western uh, uh, infrastructure, etc. Let me give you an example. Why are we implementing Basel III? Basel III is, for can is cancer medicine for Western banks, you know, like the Credit Suisse of this world, that have not solved their problem since 2008. And the complex use of derivatives. Right. Yeah. Because the complex, no, no not just that, but it, because the, the, the management has got the you know, um, risk management wrong, the regulation has not been complete, everything, etc. And yet we have no failure in Malaysia uh, since uh, 1998. So our problem is dengue, it's not uh, uh, cancer. So why are we taking it? Now, in principle, it's absolutely correct. But the West has imposed this on us, persuading that we must take this cancer medicine, whereas at the first sight of the pandemic, notice what has happened. They totally abandoned. They postponed Basel III, but effectively they've abandoned it. Now, they haven't abandoned it in principle. They've, they've abandoned in detail. All the stress tests that was imposed after uh, uh, in Basel III of, of, uh, and now Basel IV, did not rescue SVB. Hmm. And that happens the, under the nose of the Fed. No, it happens among who, those who uh, uh, proclaim they are the best and the brightest. If the best and the brightest are Bodor, why are we following them? That's my question. So my view about regulatory capital, our own thing, is that we now need to strategize when the best and the brightest are wrong, what do we do? And the answer is, we must have more confidence in ourselves. Actually, we're not that bad. Okay? We've done well. But we cannot rest on our laurels because if you rest on your laurels and become complacent, others are overtaking you. So we need to, like, you know, like people talk about reset. We're not reset will refresh. We go back to the basics. What is it that we feel are most important for us? And the answer is national unity, prosperity for all, right? These goals are not different from the Western goals, except they practice it wrongly because they're delivering inequality, right? They talk peace, but, you know, war is now coming, right? Whereas what we need to do now is to strengthen ourselves. Because whatever we talk, if we become weaker and weaker, we, we have no more voice in the global community. And this is where your view matters, uh, Tan Sri. You mentioned uh, from your observation that the system is built on elitist perspective is very important to bring back the system to the community it serves, the original purpose of it. And there's no such thing as best practices, but practices that best fit for the community and the country. Absolutely right. Best fit is a brainwash to tell you that I am best, you know, rules order is my rules, you obey. Okay? The game's changed. The game has already changed. And so, you know, the rise of the BRICS countries, right, whether you agree or disagree, is changing the game. And so, therefore, what is our 
strategy to strengthen ourselves in the coming tsunamis, put it this way, if not big waves. That's the issue. So if the best and brightest, we are, we, what we are seeing is that some of the best and brightest are already disturbed by the first tsunami wave that's coming, and we know that there are bigger waves behind. If the best and brightest are doing this, why are we following them? Right? We really need to think for ourselves. And that's what my challenge to uh, Malaysia, I'm not smart enough to do this. Okay, my, my viewpoint is just to point out what I thought we really need to rethink the game, right? We need to reimagine our future, right? And reimagining our future means we need to reimagine with all of us. Because I cannot say, I stand here, I reimagine for you, and then you must obey. That's the wrong strategy. What we really is, Moshwara. ASEAN's strategy is consensus. We are slow, yes, but the family agrees. The community agrees, and therefore we move forward. That's our strength, right? That's our strength. The West, you know, has to, they, they preach democracy, but they're one billion out of the world's eight billion, and they said that one billion says, I am the best and brightest, I am the richest, therefore I must be right. That's no longer true. Even logically is no longer true, and factually also. So I think we, what we now need to do is to forge this, you know, domestic conversation, you know, in which everybody's views must be heard, you know, and, you know, there will be tensions because that's, you know, family quarrels are, you know, never short of that. But if we can forge that consensus and see where we go forward and how do we help the majority, right, you know, develop that entrepreneurial spirit rather than just pure professionalism. Profession is good, but... The professionalism today is under real stress. And you're right, Tansri. Um, we focus so much on um, determining when it's right to have that conversation, when there's actually no perfect conversation. The conversation has to start now. That's right. Thank you very much, uh, Tansri, for the first part of today's episode. And that concludes part one of our conversation with Tan Sri Andrew Sheng on the sustainability of venture capital. For part two of the conversation, head to our YouTube channel at Penjana Capital. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications so you won't miss out on future episodes. We hope you found this episode informative and thought-provoking. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us and we will address it in the next episode. Don't forget to tune in next time as we continue our journey to explore the world of VC and bring you expert insights and in-depth discussions. Thank you for listening to The Long Game. Until next time, keep playing The Long Game and stay ahead of the game in the world of venture capital. Music